podcast is brought to you by the Administrative Committee of the Presbyterian Church in America, promoting the unity, purity, and progress of the Church. Learn more about the Administrative Committee and support its work at pcaac.org. This is Gifts and Graces. Each episode, we bring you a seminar, sermon, or discussion from church leaders across the country and around the world designed to promote the unity, purity, and progress of the church. All Christians have communion in each other's gifts and graces, says the Westminster Confession. So on this podcast, we help you and your church benefit from the gifts and graces of other parts of Christ's body. On this episode of Gifts and Graces, we get to hear from Dr. Scott Wilcher on transforming organizational culture. Dr. Wilcher is the senior pastor at Oikos Church in Chesapeake, Virginia. He is also an author and speaker. This was originally recorded as a seminar delivered at 2014 General Assembly. Let's listen as Dr. Wilcher speaks about transformative leadership. Well, good afternoon. Um, I am Dr. Scott Wilcher. Please call me Scott. I just finished my doctorate, so I'm sort of relishing in the, in the, the feel. So it, it feels really good. Um, and what you're about to hear is my doctoral thesis, um, simplified, compacted hugely. This is a two- or three-day seminar, typically, for Presbytery, or, and I do it a lot with uh, secular businesses as well, or Christian business people as well. I could talk all day about it, so if you, we're going to have to go fast. It may be frustrating. I will stick around as long as you want to talk about it tonight. Okay, and so we'll just, I'll be here, I'm a resource, I'm glad to help, okay? This is called Turning Rivers, and what I want you to do is think, rethink your leadership um, so that you can transform your church culture according to what God has called you to be and to do. So let's talk about it. Questions that people typically have is, why don't people do what we said we were going to do? Why don't we do what they said? You know, we, we agreed this was the way it was going to be, and they don't really change. Let's reach young people. Yes, yes, yes. And then they don't. And um, let's be different. Yes, we, we have to be different, but not there. And it's, it can beat you to death if you're a leader and you're in a revitalization situation and everybody says yes, but where's the change? So that's what I want to talk about. What I want you to do is, is begin to think about your mind. I want to take you to, to look at your mind in a different way. I typically work with churches that are aging that hope to reach young people. I'm the executive director of a ministry called the Upstream Project. That is our mission, to turn the heart of adult congregations toward young people. It is great fun. It's a lot more fun when you put this into practice than it is just to tell older people, love young people. Oh, we do. And nothing happens. So I want to talk about your mind. Specifically, I want to talk about the stream of thought that runs through your mind. And we can talk lots of brain hemisphericity, but let's just very quickly, I want to dive down, and I want you to begin to think about how you think as a leader and how your people think. So our thoughts come out as behaviors, and so we have this surface of our stream of thought that you see. And it can be my posture, it can be my eyes, it can be my, my hand movements, it can be my behaviors. It's just visible stuff that comes out that communicates this is how I'm thinking. Below that, 
we have social systems. The pastor over here who's dealing with the philosophical shift in churches, in how they worship, they've got a social system in place, and people don't want to change that social system. This is where I meet God. Why in the world would we change it? We also have social systems in this room right now, because I know Cal Fret back there. I can joke around with Cal and mess with him. I don't know Mark here at all, and so I have to be a little more careful where I could might be slap him in the head back there. I wouldn't slap Mark because we don't know each other that well. Exactly. That's what everybody said over there. Uh, so we have these social systems at work. Most of our social systems are not written down. We just kind of know. Once you've been in a room or a group long enough, you sort of figure it out. Oh, don't talk to her. It won't go well. And, you know, you have to be really careful around the accountant because things have to be just so. And you, you, you learn that stuff after you've been in it for a while. Below that, where the church is focused a good bit, is on worldview. At the worldview level, we get our, the way we see the world. How about that? And the way, what we believe consciously or semi-consciously. That's where you find your values. It's where you find some attitudes about how things will be or should be. Does that make sense? Yes? Okay. Proverbs 21 opens with, a verse about how God turns the hearts of kings as he turns the channels of a river. And so your job as a leader is to turn this stream of water differently because culture is much more about how a group of people thinks than it is just about the surface and how they behave. So you can walk into a Spanish culture and think, oh, they like bright colors and they like a lot of adobe. But that's not really the culture. The culture is the way those people think, the way they speak, the way ultimately that comes out on the surface in dress, architecture, behavior, etc. But really, culture is about changing the way people think. Scripture talks about renewing minds, and it talks about turning hearts. And if you look at Scripture, hearts and minds are almost interchangeable because we sometimes think with our hearts in Scripture, and we also um, we also feel with our minds. In both, they, they interchange the verbs with each other. So the problem with this, and as a church consultant, I see most consultants dealing with this area. Let's figure out a system for you. Let's figure out a policy. Let's get everybody to agree with it, and then let's go with that. But we don't really deal with this stuff down here. PCA deals a lot with this down here because the answer here is we need to educate people better, and you focus a lot on education, and it's a great thing. The problem is if you focus on worldview and you change it, and if you focus on social systems and you change it, the surface will change, but your river, your stream of thought is going to flow through the exact same channel it's flowed through before because if you want to change a culture, and if you want to change this stream of thought, you can't focus on the water. You have to focus on the ground. And once you change the ground, the water flows naturally in a new path. But you have to change the ground. Wow. The ground is by its nature 
metaphorical. The ground of our minds is metaphorical. That is, you have to think of one thing at this level in terms of another. You have to think of this thing in terms of this other thing. And so that's displayed as X, this thing, is the same as this other thing. And we're going to call that ground of our minds metathink. It is the thinking we do beyond our current thinking. And it'll make sense in a moment. Okay? Let me give you some examples of how this works. Creation. Romans 1.20. Creation is God's invisible qualities made visible. This is equal to that. Actually, it would be this is equal to that. Make sense? Ordinances. God calls us to do physical, outward things that really stand for spiritual things. Baptism. It's a physical act for, that denotes a spiritual work. Marriage represents the mystery of God's or Christ's love for the church. This is equal to that. Scripture is full of that. The scapegoat's a great example as well. Where I put my, the high priest put, would put his hand on the goat. It's a physical act. The sin is transferred to the goat so that you get to see a spiritual thing happen in front of you and that goat is taken off from the camp. And if you ask the people the next day, where's your sin? Well, it's gone. Nah, how do you know that? I saw it. It was on the goat and the goat's gone. And so that physical thing represents that invisible thing. Our lives then in Scripture are to be X equals Y as well. My life is supposed to be a picture of the incarnation of Christ. So my life is now supposed to be this other thing. All right, so that's like big biblical picture if you need that. Let's talk about what you deal with on a day-to-day basis, how soaked you are in this and you don't even know it. For example, I blank my time. Think about the verbs you can put in there. I waste my time, I spend my time, I invest my time, I divide my time, I earn my time, I donate my time, I value my time, I save my time, I guard my time. We say all of that. At a social system layer, I expect Mark to arrive on time. And if he doesn't, he's a bad person. And I'm grumpy about him because he's, he's robbed me of some time. He's cost me some time. He's wasted my time. On the worldview level, as Americans, we think time is valuable. We have a certain urgency about our day. And when the clock hits 3.15 and that 3.15 thing is supposed to start, we start. Let's go. All of that reflects the idea and is shaped by the idea that in our culture, at a metathink level, time for us equals money. Spend it, waste it, cost me time. We think time is money. And that, because of that, if he shows up late, I make judgments about him because he's robbed me of time. He's a bad person. I won't hire him. And that ha- will give you lots more examples, but that's just one. That quality of, of that equation generating values, worldview, perceptions of other people is a quality called generativity. 
And many of the equations in our heads have significant generativity. And if you can identify the equations in your congregations and then identify what they generate, then you've unleashed the real key, the real lever that's going to turn your congregation. So the power of MetaThink to generate perceptions, feelings, attitudes, beliefs, values, and ultimately surface behaviors is what we're talking about when I say the word generativity. So let's look at one more. Jesus said, from the overflow of the heart, the mouth speaks. And so if you will listen, that's step one. You have to listen to your people. And I would encourage you to record your next leadership meeting and listen for the X equals Y equations in the language of your people because from the overflow of the heart, the mouth speaks. And you will identify those equations. So my wife and I had a fight last night. I walked in the room. Man, she ambushed me. Just blew me out of the water. It was like a boom kick in the gut. I couldn't, you know, and her words were sharp and they were barbed and it hurt. Just cut me to the heart. And I, I, at some point, I just had to retreat and go to the garage and just cool off because I didn't want to go toe-to-toe with her there. That's the way we talk about arguments. My wife and I had a fight. She ambushed me. And so arguing in our culture is combat. Hear it. Ambushed me. Cut me off at the knees. She threw a grenade in the conversation. She just blew me out of the water. Cut me to the heart. And if I think arguing was combat, then it affects me on the, the autonomic level. It affects my heart rate. It affects my blood pressure. It affects how much testosterone I have in my system, how much cortisol I don't have in my system. It affects me deeply. And I go in there, and it affects my surface behavior. So my posture is, yeah, yeah. My voice is on edge. My heart rate's up. My face is flushed because this is war, baby. She sees me come in like that, and she's thinking it's war too. And so we're going toe-to-toe. We're going to have it out right here. And that generates particular outcomes for our relationship and does damage to it. Because in our culture, arguing equals combat. Below all of this in our culture, there are some foundational ideas that I call the bedrock of our minds. You probably, as leaders, will not change these particular equations. And I can't give you all of them here. I'll give you a few quickly. For instance, in our culture, up equals good. We want to get a raise. When someone is down, hear this, we hope they will cheer up. You are depressed. I'm on top of the world. Because in our culture, the way we think about, the way we've conceptualized the universe is that God is on top, and there's a chain of being that hangs below that, and there are angels and spiritual beings above us somehow, and we're there in the middle, and then we're above somehow the birds, which are above the rocks and fish and on down. And if you keep on going down, you've got Satan there at the bottom. So listen to how that generates in our culture. We lift prayers but we fall into sin because God is good and up and we don't want to go down because that means closer to Satan. The problem is, and I could do sermons about this, the problem is 
Jesus didn't call us up. Though we have been pushed up in the organization as leaders, really what Christ has called us to persistently is lay down your life. Come as a little child. We tend to put men here, women here, and then babies down here. And that's, that creates problems for us because we want, to be, we want to get a raise or we want to get a promotion. We want to move up in an organization. But Christ has called us to lay down our lives to be born again, which means we start over as a, a little child. And it, it, it's countercultural. So, up equals good. We talked about moods and cheering up and talked about careers a little bit. We also think time equals movement. If I ask you, is anyone here from a different country? Anyone function cross-cultural? Where are you functioning? Super. If I ask you to touch today... And then touch tomorrow. Do that for me. Touch today, where today is in the space in front of you. We're, just look at it. Now, where's tomorrow? Okay, look where everybody pointed. Everybody pointed over to the right, because we're Americans. And for us, we see in our heads time as this left-to-right movement. We grew up, I grew up in a classroom where there was a timeline. It went around, and it went this way. And I knew it went from left to right. We look at a number line. It goes from zero to the right because our reading direction shapes over time how we perceive time. If you're an Arabic reader, you, your perception of time is opposite. You would touch over here. If you're Chinese, the future is down here. If you are African, time is a circle. And so you don't miss opportunities. They'll, they'll come back around. Because a new season comes. Circle of life. And we tend to mix those so you get circle and direction at the same time. So sometimes we see it as a spiral going this way where there's highs and lows, and, but we're moving in a, in a particular direction. You can create all sorts of complex perceptions of time. And I could talk for days about this. We also think relationship equals proximity. Those two, two guys on the left feel pretty close to each other. Hear that word? Close. But the guy on the right, he's feeling out of it, excluded, distant not so close. And we think about communication in terms of a conduit. I'm going to put my words into this lecture, and you're going to take out of this lecture the message that I have put into it. I'm going to put my feelings into a poem, and you're going to read it and take those feelings out. And that's the way we talk about communication. It's the way we think about it on a very foundational level, at a ground level. The problem with that is we tend to think I put it right there in the email, and they didn't get it out. It's their fault. The, the real fault is that we think communication happens one time. I put it in the basket. They take it out, and it's their fault because they misinterpreted what I put in there. The reality is communication, real communication, takes more than a single message most of the time. You have to persistently nuance and, and fix it. So that's all bedrock. But on top of that bedrock, we then create what are called complex metaphors that lie on top of that bedrock. For instance, if time equals movement, then our lives equal what? One example is the struggle. Well, I'm going to work today. I'm going to push the rock up the hill, but at the end of the day, it's going to roll down. I've got to do it again tomorrow. Or we think, oops, let's go back, please that life's a game. 
you know, we got to get a strategy down, our strategy down, because because they're coming, and we got to be ready, and we got to we got to make sure we've got a good defense, and we got this, and life becomes this competition. And if someone else is my opponent in life, I would have a very difficult time collaborating with that person. Sometimes it happens on staff. We also tend to think that life equals a journey. Think about it. We have a vision. We have a mission. We have goals. We're going this way. Come on. And what that means is for us that the leader is the person out front on this journey. Leader is a metaphor. And the reason we struggle to, to define leadership is it's a metaphor. And it means lots of things in lots of situations unless you know it's a metaphor and you don't just say, I'm the leader, and you put that in the basket. Get that. Understand that. You really have to begin to communicate differently about this. And I talked about that one. Let's talk about this a bit. In the church, it's not difficult to begin to think that the journey that we are on is really a quest, that it is a noble calling, and we are looking for this holy grail, and it's a, it, God has called us. The heavens opened and said, you are going this way. And we tend to look for leaders that fit the Arthur myth. Think about this. We are looking for a pastor who is the man called by God who can pull the sword from the stone, the chosen one, who will be the leader, and he will gather his knights slash elders around him, and they will be noblemen who will rule with justice and goodness. And they will go out and do the quest, and the common people will finance that quest for them. <laughs> and we're not far from that sometimes. And it does damage to us when we see leadership as a man being elevated, hear that? Elevated to a position above us in the organization rather than a pastor who comes in service, in humility, as just a shepherd who watches the flock for the master. So, we tend to see leadership as DNA. I was born for this. Or a capacity that, yeah, you know, you, you've got some leadership stuff you can still to be poured into you yet. Or it's a skill that we learn, or it's just the ability to control people and make them dance however you want them to dance. Or it's behavior modification. That if I'm mean enough to this person, at some point they'll get the message and they won't mess with me anymore. But really, what leadership is about, it's about shaping the mind of your people. It's about turning the hearts of people. And I would argue that leadership really is about identifying those X equals Y equations that shape the thinking of your people. And there's not one. Please hear that. There are going to be little clumps of groups of people that think the same way, which is a problem for leaders. And your job as a leader is to get everybody on the same page, to get everybody lined up. So... And if you look at the leadership of Jesus, it's what he did. He didn't say, and he said a few times, if somebody asks you to go this far, go double. If somebody asks for your shirt, give them your coat too. Just, just give them, just behave this way. Most of the time what he did was he said, the kingdom of God, X, is equal to Y. The kingdom of God is equal to this. And he used analogies and he used stories and he shaped the way they thought 
not just splashing around on the surface telling them there's a new law in town. He transformed the way they reshaped the ground of their minds. So for us, if you listen to your people, your church secretary may say, well, I'm going to sneak out for lunch, but I've got to be back at 1. Um, I hope they don't you know, get upset. Um, but they're going to let me out at 5 because I've done my time. It's prison talk. Okay? That they're thinking, this is, this is a prison, and I have, have done my time. I can get out now. The circus, how you doing? Oh, I'm just trying to keep all the balls in the air. And what a pastoral moment that is when you're able to, to hear circus and realize, hey, you're, you're not in a circus. We're a team here. We're a learning community. And we're going to do this together. If you drop a ball, not that you're juggling anyway, but if it feels like you drop a ball, then it's my fault as the senior pastor or leader or whatever that, because I didn't want, you're not juggling balls. Just relax. What can we do for you? And when you change that equation in their heads, their, their perception of reality changes. I'm not alone. I'm part of a team. I'm not in a circus. It's not about outward performance. It's about connecting with other people. Um, it's a bad farm. Uh, would sound like, you know, we, we've, we've thrown the seed of the gospel out there and it's just not coming back. Ground here is rocky. It's a bad farm. The, many of us tend to fall into, and most of your followers fall into the idea that church is a performance. That was a good sermon. Well done. I like that. I'm evaluating your performance and it was excellent. The choir was a little off, but you were great. And if your performance is good, they'll invite people. But if your performance is bad, they may not bring people until you performance, your performance is up to par. Okay? And that will kill your church because nothing in the New Testament is about church being performance. Our gatherings are simply not to be a performance. And it wrecks most of American mindsets on the church. And when we talk about membership and members, we're not talking about body members most of the time. We're thinking it's a club. And I have privileges because I'm in the club. And you're not in the club. And so you don't have privileges. And it's us and them. And they can't be us until they go through the gauntlet to be part of the kingdom of Camelot and serve under the king. So... Um, Sorry, that was a little cynical there at the end. Um, but, but, I mean, I work in enough churches to know that's a pretty common patterns to hear. Um, and there are lots of others that your people will fall into. The biggest deal for you is, and I would encourage you to do this today or tonight, you've got to figure out what equations are generating your life. And you've got to figure out what X equals Y. I equal what? Until you figure that out really, even the bad one, you're going to lead in a way that's going to hurt your people. Okay? For me, I served for years as I equal imposter. And I know lots of pastors that when I say that go, oh yeah, because it's not difficult to feel like when I'm up front, I have to be Jesus. I have to be nearly perfect. I can show a little bit of humanity, but, but not too much, because that would... That would hurt some people. So I would encourage you that if 
I equals imposter in your head. You've got to identify it, you've got to disarm it, and you've got to stand on the truth that that's not who you are. That you are completely inadequate to do what God has called you to do. Yes, I agree. But you've been called to do something. And David and Moses and all those guys were just, just folks. And God still used them. So, but when you think you're an imposter, if Mark tries to get close to me and I'm thinking I equal imposter, then my first reaction is I've got to keep him at a distance. Because if he discovers me, if he really realizes who I am, he won't honor and serve me any longer. And that would hurt me. And so I have to guard myself from getting too close to people. And it will wear you out, and you will be a lonely, lonely leader. But there's lots of others. I equal on and on. I'm going to prayerfully ask God, who do, I, who do I really think I am when I'm not walking in the Spirit? And identify it, and then press through it to transform it, change the equation. So if X equals Y, and that's the landscape of your mind, then if you can create a new equation, X equals Z, then you get brand new streams of water, brand new channels running in completely different directions. So let's talk about that a bit. Earlier, I gave you the, the equation arguing equals combat. Remember that? My wife and I had a fight last night. But think about this. I think it's on here. What if arguing equals dance? If arguing equals dance, then everything changes in a moment for me. Because that woman who used to be my opponent is now my partner. And my mission is no longer to win or at least survive. My mission is now, how will we move together? How will we find agreement and beauty and grace and get in step and find the rhythm? And we generate all new stuff. My heart rate goes down. I breathe differently. My cortisol levels go up and my testosterone goes down because dancing is not life-threatening. The worst thing that happens when you dance is what? Somebody's going to get their toes stepped on. And that's not life-threatening. You just apologize. I'm sorry, I didn't mean to step on your toes. I'm just learning here. And you step back in and you continue dancing. Everything changes. And much of what we've done in the church is we've focused on mission. We've focused on um, vision and how important that is. What we've left out is what's the identity of who we are right now as a congregation. And I think in this season, it would be valuable for us. This is just my suggestion and what I, my first book, what I suggest. Um, I'm terrible at commercials, sorry. That's my first book. It's called The Orphan Generation. But instead of church being a performance, think about the, the, how different your church would be for you if church equals intentionally adoptive family. At our foundations, we've been adopted into this family by God. He's our father. And the most common address word in scripture is brethren. And so we're family here. And that changes the way I respond to Mark because I can slap him in the head now because we're family. And that's what we do in my family. And he had it coming anyway. We all know that. So, So it's everything changes. An intentionally adoptive family doesn't mean 
that we just welcome people when they come. An intentionally adoptive family says, okay, God, where's the next member of this family? And how do I find them? And then you leave the building going looking for the next son or daughter of God. And that changes everything because now it's not you have to go do evangelism. It's just I am part of a family that will love these people well and we adopt. So let's adopt. I get to be a part of that instead of the pastor needs to be doing a little more outreach. So if you change X equals Y to X equals Z, everything changes. So, again, part of my first book, we tend to look at young people in the church, and again, Jesus said, from the overflow of the heart, the mouth speaks. And so what I hear in churches is, you know, we can't corral these kids into Sunday school. Those turkeys are just monkeying around out in the hall, horsing around out there again. You know, the rugrats, ankle biters, curtain climbers are all over the place in this little church. You know, and they're, they're, they're stampeding through the halls. And so if you listen, young people are animals in this culture. And we also tend to think of them as young people. Well, let me just do this. We ask the same questions about young people that we would ask about the people we see in National Geographic magazine. Why do they dress that way? Why do they behave that way? Why do they do that to their skin? Why do they do that to their hair? Why do they, what kind of music is that? Why doesn't she put more clothes on? Because for us, as older people, young people equal aliens. They are not us. We hope one day they will become like us, speak our language, behave like us, and come to us. But until then, they need to stay in the youth group or the college young adult ministry because they scare us. Because they are not us. And that will kill your church. That, that right there is why most aging congregations are dying and will not attract young people because they really think they are not us. But one of the shifts that can happen in a church is they can begin to understand the world differently and understand there is no them and us. There's only us and potentially us. And when everybody else becomes potentially us, then they're much more likely to engage with them and, and join with them rather than keep them over there. So, if young people equal animals and young people equals aliens in your church, that's X equals Y, so we've identified that one. The goal then is to change the mindset of a church to X equals Z. And what you have to prayerfully do is figure out how do we, and I'm, I'm, not say, I'm giving this as an example, your job is to go home and hear your people on whatever issues you've got and then figure out how do we change it. But for this issue, which is the one I deal with most often, um, I, my goal is to change X equals Y to X equals Z. If you're going to find a replacement for young people in the culture, it needs to resonate not only with Scripture, but it also needs to resonate with the hearts of your people and the culture itself, and perhaps even the young people. So, prayerfully, what I considered was, what is that image? Listen to this list. Harry Potter, Spider-Man, Superman, Frodo, Luke Skywalker, Anakin Skywalker, Batman, Wolverine, James Kirk in the latest movie series, 
Belle of Beauty and the Beast, the Three Stooges in the 2012 version of the movie, Alejandro from The Mask of Zorro, Ariel from The Little Mermaid, James from James and the Giant Peach, Simba, Mighty Joe Young, Hiccup, Michael Orr, Aang from The Last Airbender. Um, let's see if this will work now. Now my computer pooped out too. I've got a list that I'll show you hopefully in a moment of about 200 movie heroes. And all of those movie heroes are orphans. Because in this culture, young people don't merely sympathize with orphan heroes, they identify with orphan heroes. They feel remarkably separated from the adults in their lives. And that creates issues for us as church leaders. The exciting part is that for every one of those orphans, almost inevitably, what happens for that orphan is an older, wiser person engages them. So Luke Skywalker gets Obi-Wan and later Yoda. Uh, Neo from The Matrix gets Morpheus. Batman gets Alfred. Um, Spider-Man has Aunt May. On and on and on. Frodo has Gandalf. Harry Potter has Dumbledore and Hagrid and others. Inevitably, what happens is that, that looks really promising. Oh, let's try it. Oh, fantastic. Um, where's my clicker? I love my clicker. Edward Scissorhands, Seymour, I'll just go through the list because you know the secret now. All orphans. Some of these are partial orphans, like Nemo lost his mother when he's young, um, but separated from his father. Um, same with Russell in Up. Um, I'm going too fast. And if you've seen Gravity, she is near the mother, attached to the mothership by an umbilical cord. The mothership is destroyed and she is left alone. But with her, there is an older, wiser astronaut who talks her through survival and how to, how to press through to a new life. Now, what happens, and this is, again, that's, that's all part of this. Um, but what happens is that the wise guide always connects the younger person to a new identity. So let's use Harry Potter as an example. Harry Potter is living in a muggle house. He's just miserable. He goes, well, let's do, let's do it this way. Wise guide connects you to a community. So we get Harry Potter connected to Hogwarts school. Okay? They give you a new identity. And so Harry Potter becomes the one, the child, or the boy who lived, no longer just the kid living under the steps. He's connected to a new power, and that power is in his wizardry. And he's connected to um, a new destiny, and that's to face Voldemort in the end. 
And that pattern happens again and again and again. You can do the same with Gandalf. You can do the same with nearly all of those characters. And what Hollywood has done is they have primed a generation of young people to expect that an older, wiser person will come to them, engage them, and connect them to a community, your church, connect them to a new identity in Christ, connect them to a new power in the Holy Spirit, and connect them to a new destiny. All of that reflects what Jesus did for Peter, who was then Simon, who got a new identity as no longer a fisherman, now he's a fisher of men, who got a new power in the Holy Spirit, got a new community in the early church, and got a new destiny to be the rock on which the church is built, and a father in the early church. So all of those movies and all those characters are priming a generation that X equals Z. And we've not taken advantage of that yet. So that's my little agenda on the side beyond helping you transform your day. Um, I'm going to go quickly. There's some stuff up here, and it's because I lost my thing. There's community, identity, power, and destiny. Um, and we talked about all of those. The big question is for us, so what? If you, like most texts do, look at your church culture as an ice, culture as an iceberg, you will fail. Because if I set you on an iceberg and I said, change this, you wouldn't have any idea what to do. You would chip away at it. You might tweak it a little bit. You might, in the old traditional methods say, you need to melt it and refreeze it in a new formation. But I don't know how to do that to an iceberg, and so it has no generativity for any leader at all. But changing the ground, all you need is a good shovel. And you've got to figure out where you want the trough to go and then you can dig. But you've got to identify X equals Y currently, and then you've got to figure out how do you want them to think. And if X equals Z, your goal is to find an equation that is as close as you can get it to the mind of Christ. What is the mind of Christ for this congregation? And how do we press them in that direction? And you're not just looking for an identity metaphor. You're looking for a metaphor that that generates on Lots and lots of levels. But if you're teaching social programs and social systems, you're not going to have nearly as much impact as if you teach the ground and really begin to shape the way people think about reality, not just how they're supposed to behave. Changes everything. Even worldviews, not enough. But once you change the ground, the worldview changes and everything else changes too. It's great fun. So much fun. The United States Navy allowed two scholars to do some research. They took 20 units in the United States Navy and decided they they needed to be transformed. They set up metrics, they set up calendars, and they started. At the end of it, only seven transformed, which is pretty normal. Usually about 30% of groups that attempt some sort of transformation in the business or military world are successful. Church is not so high because we, don't, we have so many volunteers, you just can't say, I'm sorry, you have to behave your way out of this church. See, um, that's difficult in the church, some churches. Um, so seven were successful. When they went back and looked at the seven that were successful, all seven identified this generative metaphor and inc- invented a new X equals Z and worked out of that mindset. 
and didn't focus on how are we going to behave, focused on how do we think. And that's our job as leaders, to change the way people think. Of the 13 that failed to be transformed, only one had identified X equals Y. And and so the preponderance of, of evidence is that those organizations that identify that generative metaphor are the ones that are most easily transformed. And I would encourage you, have fun. This, this will be a book, um, again, that's an hour of squished down, um, but it'll be a book. Kirkdale Press has picked it up, and they're going to do ebook and print book. So um, if I'm going to, again, I'm terrible at commercials. The Orphan Generation is now on DVD. There's six lessons designed for small groups or adult Sunday school. Um, it's great fun if you're in an aging congregation that doesn't appear to like young people, even though they may say they do. Um, and the Orphan Generation is available as well. Both of those are scottwilcher.com. Um, and the other book should come out later this year. You can hear more talks like this by subscribing to the Gifts and Graces podcast. You can also hear more content like this by attending a seminar at General Assembly. They are free and open to the public. Find out times and locations by visiting pcaga.org. Thanks for listening to Gifts and Graces.